Today's message on Amos is intense. And in fact, if I had any good sense about me, I would have made sure that after the message, which is pretty harsh, I would have had famous Amos cookies for everybody after the service. But I didn't think about this. One of our home churches that's meeting right now, they did. Asher, um, Asher, I'm going to shoot these cookies your, your way. Don't share them with your dad, okay? Um, Amos. I really struggled with, with this message. Was I going to give the weight of the harshness uh, of Amos its full weight in the book? It's nine chapters, and there are five hopeful verses in nine chapters. Um, and I decided not to kind of go, okay, here's a little quick run-through of the nine chapters, and I'm going to focus all my attention on those last five verses. Um, I'm going to give it its full force. Um, and so, so I want to um, just prepare you. This is a harsh message. And by the way, I don't feel harsh. I'm just delivering God's word. So take this up with God, okay? Um, the book begins by announcing that the Lord roars from Zion. Um, boy, that is a, uh, that is a quick introduction to some intensity, um, and that theme is going to show up a number of times. There will be a number of themes that are going to show up again and again and again. But let me just introduce you to this, just the feel of the book from this theme of the Lord roaring from Zion. After chapter 1 introduces us to Amos and what he does and where he lives, chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the, sh- pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Um, yeah, the Lord is thundering from Zion. Uh, he, is, he, is, he is roaring like a lion coming in judgment. And, and judgment is coming so that the pastures where the shepherds have their flocks, they're drying up. There's no provision for those shepherds. There, there's going to be no meals for you. And the top of Carmel withers. I want, I, I'm highlighting that for you. Um, Carmel is a mountain north uh, in Israel, up in the north. There's a, a really, it's literally a snow-covered mountain. Um, and on that mountain, um, there's, it's one of the most fertile places in the whole country. Uh, Carmel, literally, the L is God. Uh, Karem is vineyard. It's the vineyard of God. Way up north, this vineyard of God, and what he says is the vineyard of God is going to wither. Um, it is a place where the uh, the, the winter snows would come and it would bring great fertility to the land. But even that place, the vineyard of God is going to wither. Keep that in mind for the end of the book. He begins the book by saying, the Lord is roaring, pastors are going to have nothing for the sheep, and the vineyard of God withers. Okay, This theme of the Lord uh, roaring continues. Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does, does a lion roar when there's nothing there? No, the lion roars when there's something in the thicket. He's roaring at what it's caught in the thicket. And you're the one caught in the thicket is the, the implication here. Does it growl in its den if it doesn't have anything? It's in there eating? No, it's growling because it's, it's consuming its prey. The Lord is roaring. The Lord has got you caught in the thicket. The Lord is consuming the prey. The Lord has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. 
Who can but prophesy? Amos is basically saying, he is roaring and you should be in fear of this. He roared and he's basically saying, I'm not, I'm not roaring. The Lord is roaring. I, I'm just delivering the prophecy. The next verse I'm going to show you, I'm not sure I can call it a favorite verse, but I just love how it works, okay? Here's what chapter 5 says. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. Um, You're not escaping. You may think you're going to flee and escape the judgment of God coming upon the sinfulness of the nation. You may think you're escaping, but you're just going out of the the frying pan into the fire. You're going uh, escaping a lion and just moving towards a bear. This is an incredibly, incredibly uh, heavy book. Here's, here's another thing he says. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness, not light. If you'll remember last week, we talked about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this time of both judgment and blessing. It's judgment where God kind of clears the plate by judging his enemies so that he can then bless his people. Here he says, why do you long for the day of the Lord? You think you're part of the blessing group. You're not part of the blessing group. You're part of the judgment group. Sorry, you guys are part of the judgment group today. Why are you longing for this? What you're going to get when the day of the Lord comes, when he visits, is judgment. And he's going to give them nine chapters of judgment. Um, Here's a good summary of the feel of the book from Danny Hayes. If you want to stay complacent toward the poor, content with your current attitude toward injustice, then it would be wise to skip over the book of Amos. Likewise, if you are squeamish or if you want to read only G-rated material in the Bible, then Amos might be too graphic for you. In the time of Amos, Israel was experiencing a time of lavish prosperity for the wealthy but devastating poverty for the poor. Um, This is a book that's relevant for our society and for the church, where by and large, there's prosperity in the church, but there are a lot of people um, who, who aren't prospering. And the question is, how do we relate to them? He goes on to say, Amos blasts the people responsible for this social inequity, which had developed because Israel had abandoned any serious attempt to keep the law of Deuteronomy. Amos is scathing, even brutal in his critique, and he has no concern for political correctness. He ruffles everyone's feathers. Um, the covenant told... Um, the people of Israel this. When you go to worship, make your sacrifices available to poor people. Here's here's what that meant. There are certain sacrifices that were atoning sacrifices. They they took care of your sin, and those were, um, they were offered to the Lord, and and a a whole burnt offering was completely burned up. But after your sins were taken care of, you repaired the damage you had done to someone else by confessing that sin, making it right, And then you dedicated yourself to the Lord. You offered him offerings. The culmination of all the offerings was called the fellowship offering or the peace offering. And it's where another animal was taken and it would have been cooked. And then the worshiper and his family would have shared a meal with a priest to celebrate the fellowship you now have with God, to celebrate the peace you have with God. Um, All of the other offerings, um, you could substitute um, a bird or some smaller portion of the offering to take care of your sin. But this fellowship offering required something substantial so you could share a meal. And the requirements of the law say this. When you're there worshiping and you are cooking this meal that you have as the culmination of your worship, 
If there's a poor person there who maybe had to go catch a bird that they could sacrifice, you invite that poor person to come into the sanctuary and join you in that, in that celebratory meal. That's why David can say, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. Because when worship is really taking place, the wealthy are making sure the poor are fed. This is not taking place in the country. I'll make it clear for you. (laughs) Danny Hayes goes on to say this. Amos is without doubt one of the most graphic and blunt of all the prophets. Read him at your own risk. I'm going to give Amos his full weight today. And I I felt it first hour. um, I'm not angry. (laughs) I'm not angry at you. But I think this is relevant for us in the sense of has, has our faith really impacted our lifestyle? Are we really living out the, the reality that because we have been blessed, we should bless others? And is our worship, is our worship real? I've got a couple of resources for you out there at the Connection Center. There's one that's a historical background that deals with all of this connection to, to our society. Because both in the northern kingdom of Israel and in the southern kingdom of Judah, this was a time of prosperity. They were doing really well. But it's these wealthy people who were not assisting the poor. And then there's another section in there on um, uh, Old Testament ethics. How, all of, how do you apply all of this stuff today? And I want to say we need to take this seriously. And I'm not in any sense saying we replace um, social work, w- replace the gospel with social work. No, but if you really have embraced the gospel, it'll impact how you live and how you love others around you. Um, historical setting for this, let me go back. Um, the northern or the, the kingdom of Israel was united for about 120 years under Saul, David, and Solomon. Each one of those kings ruled for about 40 years, and the whole kingdom was united. Then the kingdom divided, and this becomes really significant for today's message. The kingdom was divided into um, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. In Judah, in the south, that's where Jerusalem was, the temple was. Um, they had it off, had it a little bit better uh, because they had um, a religious center and there were um, a few revivals that took place. There are 20 kings in the north, um, or 19 kings in the north. None of them are good. None of them lead revivals. But in the south, there are 20, and about eight of them lead some revivals through the time. Up in the north, um, their capital is Samaria, but I'm going to highlight in particular, there was a false center of worship they set up called Gilgal and another one that became the primary one in Bethel. So Bethel and Gilgal are the false centers of worship in the north because they don't have access to Jerusalem in the south. And they set up these false centers of worship where um, they're not truly worshiping the Lord. Because the northern kingdom... Um, doesn't have any revivals. In 722, they're taken away by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer until 586, and they're taken away by the Babylonians. But these two kingdoms sometimes are working together, but most of the time they're in rival with each other. And, and I can explain it this way. Um, Amos was from the south. He's a southerner, but he is preaching in the north. Think about how that works. It'd be like a southerner from here going up and preaching against all you Yankees. By the way, I hear that all the time, and I think, 
I'm from Alaska. You can't get more Yankee than that. Or you may want to reverse it. It's some Yankee coming down here telling you Southerners how you need to live. I don't know how you put it together, but there's some real tension that's in this book. Um, Amos is one of the pre-exilic prophets. In the time before um, Assyria takes the northern kingdom in 722 or Babylon takes the southern kingdom in 586, there were a number of prophets before that exile who prophesied. Once they go into exile, we've already looked at these two prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, um, who who prophesied during a 70-year exile while they're out of the country from 605 to 536. And then three prophets are going to come and prophesy uh, when they come back from the exile under Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. Um, The prophet we're looking at here is a prophet who's prophesying to Israel. He's from the south in Judah, but he's prophesying to Israel And his message is going to be really pointed, and it's going to be really serious. Here's what Bruce Wilkinson says. Amos prophesied during a period of national optimism in Israel. Business was booming, and boundaries were bulging. But below the surface, greed and injustice were festering. Hypocritical religious motions had replaced true worship, creating a false sense of security and a growing callousness to God's disciplining hand. Famine, drought, plagues, death, destruction, nothing could force the people to their knees. God had, faithful to his covenant, done exactly what we saw last week. He had intensified the discipline, but it had never taken place. And if you're wondering whether this is a book because God is just always harsh, this is after 800 years of his patience. He's waited 800 years, but now in Amos, he's had it all. He's not going to take any more. He's been patient for 800 years, but this book says, I'm finished. Bruce Wilkinson goes on to say, Amos, the country farmer turned prophet, lashes out at sin unflinchingly, trying to visualize the nearness of God's judgment and mobilize the nation to repentance. The nation, like a basket of rotting fruit, which is an image he's going to use later in the book, stands ripe for judgment because of its hypocrisy and spiritual indifference. This is a harsh book. Don't you wish you had an excuse to leave right about now? Uh, This is going to get even more intense. Um, Let's talk about um, the context of it before I get into some of the details. Who composed Amos? Unlike Ezekiel and Jeremiah, who were priests, and Isaiah, who was likely part of the royal family, Amos was a farmer who worked as both a sheep breeder and a fig grower, which indicates that he was probably a man who owned a lot of uh, land and he was wealthy. He was from a small town of Tekoa, just 11 miles south of Jerusalem, and he's the only prophet who has another, an, another clear profession other than being a prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, these guys, we only know that they're prophets. We know exactly what Amos did, and it seems like Amos um, was a, a, a sheep breeder and a fig farmer. He went up, delivered his message, and then came home. Um, he had another job. He was a layman. He wasn't a professional guy like me. He was just like you. God called him to be serious and to deliver a message, and he did. Who's the audience of Amos? Amos is clearly preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel and is likely one of the first prophets to preach there. Um, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, um, Elijah, Elisha, they're all in that, in that uh, same time zone early on in the kingdom. His messages would have been directly given to Israel, actually, that's a a typo. His messages would have been given directly to Israel, but the implications and example of what he said coming to pass would have been a warning to the southern kingdom of Judah 
as it is for us today. He's preaching to the northern kingdom. But in the, in the preface, he highlights a northern king, but also a southern king, because there's a message for the southern kingdom too. And it is, watch what happens to the north, because this is how God works. Doug Stewart, um, I, I love Doug Stewart. He says, the main audience for this book was those who would read it in Judah in the decades and centuries that followed. It was this audience that the Judean Orient superscription was composed. This is composed, the message is delivered to the north. Um, it's preserved for the south and preserved for us because all of us have the same temptations. And that is to rest in our luxury and not pay attention to those in need around us. To just go through the motions of worship and it, and it not really be something that's coming out of our heart. All of us struggle with these temptations. When was Amos written? The ministry of Amos is dated in the reign of Uzziah, king of Judah, the guy in the south, and the reign of Jeroboam II, the guy in the, in, of Israel in the north. The opening verse also dates his prophecy to two years before the earthquake. Archaeological evidence suggests that a major earthquake may have occurred around 760 BC. Perhaps that is the earthquake to which Amos 1.1 is referring. At the time of Amos, the northern kingdom of Israel was rather powerful and quite prosperous, but that prosperity was limited to the upper classes. Morality was non-existent in Israel and heading the wrong direction in Judah. Uh, boy, this is so, so relevant for us today. <laughs> um, affluence but no morality. Um, the, the church, blessed, maybe even full, but not really having an impact. And by the way, I, I don't feel harsh against anybody here in the room. I, don't, I, 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 do, I feel good about our, our body. We, we do have ministry, and we work with um, the ministry center downtown, uh, people who are really struggling. Um, we we do have a body that is, that is serious about helping others. We have two home churches that are working with um, one of the, the schools in town uh, where the kids are, are really struggling. Most of the schools have watchdog dads who come and make sure the kids are safe when they go to school. This school doesn't have dads to do that. And so a number of the men from two of our home churches are watchdog dudes. They're not the dads, but they're showing up to help. We do have ministry to people who are needy. Um, but is this really impacting us in a personal way? Why was Amos written? Amos, the most stern and colorful of all the minor prophets, was written to give a colorful, uncomplicated picture of the righteous indignation of the Lord in response to idolatry, hypocritical worship, and especially social injustice. He does provide one small of grips, glimpse of hope at the end of the book. And I'll get there. But I'm going to give full weight to the harshness of this book. So let's look at um, how all of this develops. Um, it's pretty simple. He introduces uh, Hosea and his message. Um, he's going to do an interesting thing I'll show you on a map in just a minute. When he, he talks about judgment that's coming on all these other nations, but then he focuses in on Israel. Uh, then he's going to say the word of the Lord is coming because of, of what's going on in your, in your lives. They, they basically have a false hope. They're comfortable, um, but they shouldn't be. And, and they they have false worship and false security in, in what they're doing. And then he has these visions of five images that he's going to use coming against them. And then he ends with this five verses of salvation coming at the end. 
Um, in, in the chart that's out at the Connection Center, uh, I have this map inlaid in there because the map is really important for you to see what he's doing. When he talks about these other nations um, that he is um, saying God is going to judge, what he's doing is very strategic. He is circling Israel. He's not just saying, okay, they're going to get it. He's circling them. And in one sense, I think Israel would have been saying, yeah, they need to be judged. They need to be judged. But what he's doing is it's almost like he's firing bombs in because he's really finding his target because Israel's really the target right there in the middle. He's zeroing in on who he's really going to attack. Um, it's fascinating. He uses these images that, that we've seen before, the image of a locust, um, the image of a fire, the image of a plumb line. Um, he, he's basically going to say, um, God built you as a straight wall, but now I put a plumb line up and you're out of kilter. You're, you're not straight anymore. Then he's going to liken them to a basket of rotten fruit ready to be thrown out. And then he's going to say, you're before the altar of God. And, and it's not an altar for worship. It's an altar for judgment. But he is going to end with this, this wonderful time at the end. And keep in mind what he said at the verse number two. He's going to say, Carmel was withering in the judgment. Keep that in mind. Um, one sentence that tries to capture all of this. Amos, a sheep breeder and fig farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah, related messages of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel, showing the idolatry injustices of the wealthy and ritualism in worship infuriated the Lord and demonstrated that they were not living according to the covenant in order to call them to repent and encourage the righteous remnant, both north and south, and that the Lord would restore them. In the middle of all this, there were people, even though in the, in the north there was almost nothing good going on, and in the south they were clearly moving in the wrong direction. There were a few people, a few remnant people who were trying to do the best they could. But this message says, God's going to get you. (laughs) Let's look at what's going on. Amos is is legitimately harsh. By the way, when I put this title on the top of of the uh, slide, I was thinking, I'll have a few slides for Amos' legitimately harsh. I've got a bunch of slides for Amos' legitimately harsh. Um, and, and I could have read just the whole first nine chapters. But listen to some of these. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs and a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. <laughs> I mean, this is picturesque, don't you? The lion has got its prey and is ripping it around. And if you're trying to save something, what do you end up with? Piece of a leg and a part of an ear. It's all that's left of you guys. But for them, it's the corner of your bed and your couch because you're, you're resting in your nice, comfortable beds and you're lounging on your couches. But just a little bit of that is just going to be left because God's going to rip all of that away from you. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria. This is addressed to the wealthy women. Oh my gosh. He's calling them cows. You cows of Bashan who shop at Classic Touch. Hear this. Sorry. Sorry. My wife used to work there. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God is sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You fancy ladies in all of your nice dresses and couches, you're going to be led away with a hook in your mouth. 
you're, you're living in the laps of luxury and you're going to be drug away by hooks. The Lord has sworn by himself, the proud of pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. I don't know how you say that kindly. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. One little line of hope. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. I'll be faithful because I made a plan and I said, I'll use you to bless the whole world. So I'm going to deal with everybody, but not, I won't completely destroy you because I'll be faithful to accomplish my plan. You're just not going to be a part of it. Oppression of the poor is is at the core of what they're doing. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. He said that to all the other nations. And and when he said for three transgressions uh, and for four in Ammon and in Moab and in Egypt, they would have all been cheering. But now he says for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar and the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Folks, here's the details. (laughs) You're taking advantage of the poor person. The person who, who... who's so needy, you sell them for the price of sandals. You, indent, you put them in indentured servitude um, just so you can buy a new pair of sandals. These poor people who are, who are panting, trying to just eke out a living, you're taking advantage of them. These people who are humble, you're taking advantage of them. And you profane my name. You use these people just as your sex slaves. And he says... And, and then you take all of this stuff and you bring it into the house of the Lord and you offer it as part of your worship. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor at the gate. Um, <laughs> you, you, are, you are using every means that you can to increase your wealth and take advantage of the poor. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. By the way, archaeological evidence has, has um, revealed there's, there was a, a real um, explosion of ivory during this, this period of time. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful bowl and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. You're successful. You got lots of stuff. Plenty of lotion, nice beds, great couches, plenty of wine. But you're going to go into exile. Hypocritical worship is the second big theme he's got here. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Galgal, multiply your transgressions. These are the false centers of worship. 
Jerusalem is where they should be worshiping, where the real temple was and the presence of the Lord was. That's not where they, that's not where they are. They're in Bethel and Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is laven, and, and proclaim freewill offerings. Make them known, for you love to do so, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. Go ahead, keep it up. Keep it up. Keep going through the motions. Keep, keep your false worship going. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me a burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Your false worship disgusts me. It's a stench. I wonder how many... How many churches? I, I, I didn't experience it today. I think um, the, the worship that we've already experienced in this building today has been a sweet aroma to the Lord. But I wonder how many places are a stench to the Lord? How many offerings are not accepted? And then I think we need to make that personal. <laughs> are, are, we, are we trying to buy the Lord? <laughs> are our offerings um, not just offerings we give here, but are we, are we trying to bless other people around us? And is your worship real? By the way, I'm, I'm going to be real practical with that. Here's what I mean by real worship. I don't mean raise your hands, sing beautiful, sing loud. I, I, don't, I don't care what you, what you do with your body. I mean, here's what I mean. Do you mean it? I see, I see people raising their hands all the time, and it doesn't look real to me. It just it looks like they're just raising their hands and... Anybody seeing what I'm doing here? Here's what I mean. When you read the words and you sing them out, do you mean it? Or are you just going through the motions? That's what real worship is. That's the kind of worship that is a sweet aroma to him, not a stench. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music that you're playing. Not how good it is. It's not whether it's a hymn or a worship song or whether there's drums or an electric guitar. Do you mean it? You're singing from your heart. And here's what's going to happen. Here's the result. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. You're going to get invaded. And in the north, that happens by the Assyrians. And the south should have paid attention because the Babylonians were coming 150 years later. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Leboth Hamath in the north to the valley of Arabah in the south. From north to south, you're going to get invaded. There'll be consequences to your sin. But the Lord's character is seen through this book. Um. This is what what God says he does. And the question is, do we do this? Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. God is a God of justice. His justice will roll like a river. His righteousness, not like a never failing stream. Are you going to get in the river and be just and righteous? Or is the river going to roll over you and take you off into judgment? God's character is just and righteous. He has a heart for the disadvantaged. And he wants his people to have a heart for disadvantaged people. 
uh, Don and I have got plenty of problems. We are not perfect people. I mean, if you're looking for perfect people, fire me today. Um, but my wife has a real heart um, for genuinely hurting people. Um, we have in our house a, a bucket, <laughs> and in that bucket is Ziploc bags that have um, a, a small towel, a Walmart card, a bar of soap, some shampoo, some lotion, some sunscreen. And she puts them in these Ziploc bags, and they always go in, in our car. And we have to be careful because we don't just hand them out indiscriminately. We kind of look, and, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, we're trying to figure out, is that a scammer? Is that, is that, is that a scammer? Or is that, uh, they look legitimate? And then I'll drive around the block, you know, until we can drive slow enough that we pull over to the side and just reach it out and just say, Jesus loves you. And there's a, there's a, a, a presentation of the gospel in there. Do you have that kind of heart? Do you have a heart for for disadvantaged people. And again, let me tell you, I'm not saying we replace social justice is a replacement for the gospel. But if the gospel's really had an impact on your life and you realize that he redeemed you when you were unworthy, maybe you could do something for somebody else who may be unworthy. And he's blessed you so you can be a blessing to other people. Let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. And in the middle of this book, you still have, this is what the Lord says, seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Seek him. Kind of the context, he's basically saying, seek him and and you'll live, but I know you're not gonna because you're too comfortable in all the things you've got. Here's the the words of final hope. Listen to these. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. He's going he's gonna to restore everything to the way it should be. And Edom's going to be judged. More on that next week in Obadiah. One chapter, but it's, it's all about God judging Edom. Last few verses. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land. I will give them, says the Lord your God. Remember where we started? Carmel, the vineyard of the Lord, will be, um, ban- will be barren. Here we have this return to the garden of the Lord. And, and now there's true blessing that's coming from the Lord. It's not opulence that they're taking care of. It's they're drinking good wine because God is blessing them. But they see it as the blessing of God, not their own, um, not their own wealth to be consumed. So what do we do with such a harsh book? Where where do you go with this? Amos portrays a picture of a stern God who is serious about the consequences of sin and hypocritical worship. And I can't soften that. God is stern. (laughs) Amos provides a clear presentation of the heart of God for the poor and oppressed and the responsibility of those who have been blessed to assist them. 
you have a heart to bless people who are less fortunate than you. And, and this gets hard in our, in our world because, you know, in my neighborhood, nobody in my neighborhood needs me to mow their lawn. They've, they, they should come mow my lawn with their riding mower. I've got a push mower still. But you've you got to go looking. You've got to go looking for someone like that. It's probably not in your neighborhood. Amos provides a clear presentation of the heart of God for the poor. Do we have that heart of God? Has the gospel impacted us so much so that we want to bless other people? Amos reiterates the importance of heartfelt worship in spirit and truth. And again, it's not loud. It's not raising your hands. It's do you mean it? When we sing these songs in a little bit, do you mean them? Are they coming from your heart? What should we believe? God is indignant and impatient with those who enjoy living in luxury while the poor around them suffer in poverty. That's true, folks. If he's blessed you, it's so you can bless others. He gets particularly upset with us when we separate ourselves from the plight of the poor and simply focus on enjoying our high standard of living. Being better than others is not as bad as, or not as bad as others is not God's standard. When he goes around those other nations, Israel was just going, yeah, we're not bad like them. That's not, the, that's not the standard, folks. God doesn't let us judge ourselves. We're not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not as bad as my brother. If we disregard the suffering of others, God views our worship of him as hypocritical. If the gospel hasn't had an impact on your life, coming in here and singing songs is a stench. So how should we be saved? How should we behave? Be generous with our resources to assist those in need around us. Be genuine in our worship because the Lord is worthy. And be brutal with your self-reflection according to God's standard, not comparing yourselves to others. Be brutal with yourself. Is my, genuine, is my worship really genuine? Do I really mean this, these things I'm singing? Do I really want to come to church because I want God's word to shape me? Do I really believe that, that God is, has blessed me so I can be a blessing to others? Some next steps from this message. Take a serious inventory of your life. If Amos says anything, it is take a serious inventory of your life. Is the Lord pleased? Does justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream in your life? Is there justice and righteousness in your life? Are you consuming your wealth or stewarding it? Seek out ways to bless others with your resources. It's not wrong to be wealthy. Did you see at the end? There's lots of wine flowing but are you going to use that to bless other people? Consider how engaged you are in the worship of the Lord and keep your eyes on Jesus because he's the, he's the author, the perfecter of our faith. He's, he's where it all lands. It's all, it's all about Jesus.